Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. My friends, we are in Proverbs 12. Proverbs chapter 12. It's really good to gather, isn't it? What a blessing for us to be able to be together and consider the word, to know that it's true, and to sit ourselves under and hear what the Lord has to say to us, even though it's a book that's 3,000 years old, uh, in some cases, uh, just to be able to sit under it and to know that these are uh, truths that we can rest in. We, we, are, we are truly a privileged people. You know, just do a little research. Uh, this idea that each one of us could have a Bible and uh, call it our own, this idea that we could have 10 Bibles scattered throughout our houses is so foreign to the history of the world. Uh, the idea that we could have a, a free place to go and to sit and to gather and to receive it uh, is such a privilege. We are, we are truly a privileged people and we're blessed. So it's good to be here. Thank you for coming. As I said, we are in Proverbs chapter 12. We are in the midst of the second section of the book of Proverbs where you have all of these individual little ideas that um, Solomon is sharing where each verse, every couple of verses is a new concept or theme that he is digging into. If we had to pick a theme for this second section of the book, it would essentially be that Solomon is making a contrast. And it's a contrast between the character and the fate of the wise and the character and the fate of the fool. Or he uses the words really interchangeably, the character and fate of the righteous and the character and fate of of the wicked. And we've been taking notice of that. And and here we're going to see it a lot of times now in chapter 12. And he jumps right in in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And I hesitate to say that because that's sort of a curse word in my family. But Solomon says it, so I guess it's okay. He comes right out and lets us know what he thinks. He who hates reproof is stupid. There was a number of years ago we were in Israel and each morning when we would go out uh, on our way to the various places, uh, oftentimes we'd have like about an hour bus ride and so we would begin that bus ride, somebody would get on the intercom of the bus and they would read one of the Proverbs. And all they simply did was, if today was the 10th day of the year, then we would read the 10th proverb, or excuse me, 10th day of the month, we would read the 10th proverb. And so this particular day, they asked me to read. It must have been the 12th day of the month, because the first verse I read was this particular verse, he who loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And as the words were coming out of my mouth, I I sort of caught myself, because I didn't want to curse in front of all the nice people in Israel. Uh, And I said out loud, I said, are we allowed to say stupid? And my wife said, apparently we are. It's in the Bible. So apparently we are. We're allowed to say stupid. King James uses the word brutish, but most of us don't even know what that word means. Alrighty, Brutish means without sense, animalistic, like an animal that doesn't know what it's doing, just goes and does what it does, or stupid. So whatever word you want to choose, brutish, animalistic, without sense, stupid, Solomon is saying the same thing, that the person who refuses to receive discipline is a fool. Now, before you go around and start calling everybody stupid or saying that thing's stupid or this is stupid, I don't think you should really say it. We use the word a little too much. Uh, But nonetheless, remind ourselves here where Solomon is going. He says this, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Again, what he's doing is he's contrasting the wise individual with the foolish individual. 
And in this case, the wise individual is the one that loves discipline, while the fool is the one that hates reproof. That's the first marked difference that Solomon is going to give us here in chapter 12. And that is the way in which a wise person and a foolish person responds to being corrected. The wise person knows, or will, I should say, love knowledge because they know that in attaining knowledge, they will grow wiser still. So the wise person loves knowledge because they know in the attaining of that knowledge, they're going to grow wiser still. They're going to experience growth in their life. And the wise person also knows that the means to attaining that knowledge sometimes is being corrected when their thinking is in error or when their actions are in error. And so the reason why a wise person loves discipline is because they know sometimes that's the key to attaining even more knowledge. That correction is discipline. And again, we've said it, at the root of the word discipline is the word disciple, which has to do with teaching, which has to do with learning. And so quite simply, if you want to learn and you want to grow and you want to be further along in your development as a person, as a believer, all those things, then you must submit yourself from time to time to necessary correction that will inevitably come from time to time in our lives. That's part of the learning process. And the wise person learns to value that learning so much that they're willing to embrace every aspect of the process, even that which is less than comfortable. And so they'll embrace the correction. Now, I would imagine none of us would debate the statement that the process of correction or reproof is never pleasant. Amen? Anyone like, oh, I love it when I get discipline. Uh, no, none of us. All right, the process of reproof is never pleasant. It doesn't jive with our natures. We rebel against it. So as soon as the correction comes, more often than not, but you but, that's what we say, yeah, but, you don't understand, you know, and we begin to try to defend ourselves. Here's what I think we need to know. Neither the wise person nor the foolish person likes to be corrected or receive discipline. Nobody likes it. Neither the wise person or the foolish person. The difference is that a wise person where the difference between a wise person and a foolish person is not that one likes it and the other doesn't, but that one receives it and the other doesn't. That's the difference. The wise person has learned to value correction for its results, seeing the correction as a very valuable part, very valuable part of the learning process. And there are just some people that do not want to be reproved, and thus they will never learn. Or if they do learn, it's going to be a very, very hard journey to get them there. But there are some people that just do not want to be reproved. And that is why they're never going to learn. That's why Solomon calls them, he calls them stupid. Again, it's a harsh word, but it makes his point. If you refuse to be corrected, you will never learn. If you refuse to be corrected, you will never learn. I had so many students over the years that came into my classroom convinced they knew a particular topic. And it was just so incredibly frustrating as a teacher. And so you gave them the opportunity, okay, tell me what you know. And you realize they read like a, the back of a baseball card and they had a little bit of information on it. And you know there's a lot more that they can learn and a lot they can do with that processing. But they had already learned. And they shut off and they weren't willing to listen any further. It was just frustrating as a teacher to me. I don't know. I just want people to listen to me, I guess, in the classroom. I don't know. But I think when this idea of being corrected comes, if we refuse to it, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why am I refusing to learn? And oftentimes it comes back to one thing, pride. It always goes back to pride. And so the question is, do you want to maintain your pride 
and never have to submit to the idea that you're wrong about something? Or do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? Do you, do you want to advance from this place to this place? What is it? I want to hold on to my pride, never have to submit, never have to say I'm wrong. Remember Fonzie? Some of you old people? Alrighty. I know some of you. I could just tell some faces are like, what's a Fonzie? Alrighty. But Fonzie was like the man in the, the show Happy Days. And whenever Fonzie would do something wrong, and it would only be with a few people, Fonzie would have to say I was wrong or I'm sorry. And Fonzie, you know this, right? You watched Happy Days with me? Fonzie would say, I, I was raw. I was raw, raw, And he couldn't get the word wrong out. His pride. Some people just don't want to be corrected. They want to maintain their pride, but they're never going to grow and they're never going to learn. And so let me just pose this question. How do you do in responding to correction? And if need be, it has to go a little bit further discipline. How do you do with that? How do you respond? So when your boss stops by your desk to have a quick chat. Hey, I was just hoping I could take a few minutes and chat with you today about something. And you know it's what it's about. How do you respond to that conversation? Now, I imagine most of us externally, we respond very positively because we want to keep our job. And so, yes, sir, whatever you say, ma'am, I'll do what you need me to do and so on. But internally, how are you responding? Internally, are you there thinking in your heart, this guy, this guy's a bum, this lady, she thinks she knows. She has no idea. She's lucky that I work here. How do you respond inside to that correction? Because if in your heart you're getting all offended and hurt and shutting this person off and refusing to accept anything this boss has to say, you'll give the head nod, but as soon as that man or that woman leaves, leaves now you're just going to go back and do it the way you want to do. Have you grown? Have you learned? Thank you. Have you learned anything? No, you haven't. Young people, when mom or dad pulls you aside to address an area, we, my wife and I, we've, we've begun doing this with other people's children. Ours are very good. All right? <laughs> but with other people's children, we'll say, you know what, I think we should, we should have a talk tonight when you come home from school. And we do that to make their day miserable. All right? All day they're going to be thinking about what that conversation might be. But from time to time, you know, kids, they need to grow. They need to learn. My wife often says to me, we should have a talk when you come home from work today. And I need to grow. I need to learn. And, and then we have that conversation. So kids, when mom or dad pulls you aside, how do you respond? Do you roll your eyes? Do you roll your internal eyes? Because you don't roll that eye of me, I'll roll that little head of yours, is what, what's his name said, uh, Bill Cosby, I guess it was. All right, but do you roll your eyes? Do you tell yourself this old man, this old woman don't know what they're talking about? Just finish. I'll say whatever you want so you leave me alone. Is that your response to correction? You're never going to grow. You're never going to learn. Or it's going to take something very, very painful, more significant, until you finally say, hey, this is sort of like what mom and dad were talking about. And so you've got to open yourself up. The wise person opens himself up to correction. And again, they may not like the correction, and it's not likely, it's not going to feel warm and fuzzy to be corrected, but the wise person's eyes are on the prize that is beyond the correction. Their, their eyes are on the prize beyond the immediate. The immediate stinks. I hate when people come and correct me, but their eyes are beyond that. Hey, I'm going to learn from this. And I'm not going to make the same mistake again. Or if I do, I'll be ready quickly to get out of it so I can move on from here. They're looking past the immediate uncomfortable feeling caused by the correction to the long-term opportunity of growing in wisdom. And because they do that, because they see the benefit of then, they're willing to put up with the correction now. 
And it's because of them, of that I should say, that it says here in the verse that they, they love discipline. So if you struggle in this area of receiving correction, bring it to the Lord in prayer. And just simply ask the Lord, just find out what's going on. Lord, why am I so hesitant to receive correction? And then ask the Lord, you know, Lord, search out every area of my heart, reveal What is the reason for that? It's pride, it's arrogance, it's I think I'm better than everybody. I guess that's all the same thing, you know, in that particular thing. And then as the Lord begins to reveal that, then submit it to him. Make it a matter of prayer. Talk to him about it and say, Lord, today I don't want to respond that way. And when I do, would you catch me right away and make me aware of it? And then I'll submit that to you and I'll try. And before long, you'll begin to develop this habit of thinking properly in response to correction. You agree with him in that, and the Lord will grow you as a result. It's, it's important for us as believers to be able to receive correction, so I'd encourage you in that, okay, friends? Let's go on to verse 2 and verse 3. It says, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but, are the, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. Now, oftentimes we hear that the reward for righteousness here on earth is an eternity in heaven. You know, so this idea that we are simply looking for the, for, true, like for the far into the future. You know, you live a righteous life now, you come into a right relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ now, Christ now, and your reward will be heaven. And sometimes it seems as if the message is the only reward for walking with God is eternity in heaven. And that is obviously true. The Bible makes it very, very clear. But what this passage makes clear is not only is our reward eternity in heaven, but there's a reward here on the earth for walking with God and being in right relationship with God. That it's more than just being solely beyond the grave. Notice what the verse says. It says that the good man obtains favor from the Lord. That's now. That the good man obtains favor from the Lord now. It's, it's that life that that person is living that God can bless now. So a good man, and different terms are used for that here in the book of Proverbs, an honest person, a hardworking person, a diligent person, an ethical person. All of those are terms that are associated with walking in righteousness in the book of Proverbs. A good man can be sure of the Lord's favor here on the earth now. And conversely, a person with wicked intentions the opposite of a good man, they can be equally sure that the Lord stands opposed to their lifestyle and their decisions. And so, again, the verse says, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. He will not bless that. Now, it's not that God hurls down lightning bolts every, per- every time a person gets out of line. And sometimes people erroneously can uh, assume or presume that, well, you know, I went and I did that horrible thing. There were no lightning bolts from heaven. So God must not care, or God must not see, or God must not notice. Just because the, the judgment doesn't come immediately doesn't mean that God approves of that sort of behavior, that sort of action. And what this verse teaches us is that the Lord will simply allow that own man or woman's wicked uh, actions to backfire on them. Those things that he comes up with and devises, they will, come, they will come back and they will backfire on that person. And so a person that is constantly devising evil, they may seem to be getting ahead a bit here on the earth. 
it may seem as if, well, look, I employed that method, and now look where I'm at at this particular day. But eventually, this verse makes very clear that that wickedness will eventually catch up with that person. It may prosper for a while. The wicked may get ahead for a season. But as you look in this verse, the the beginning of verse 3, no person will ever be established by wickedness. No person will ever be established by wickedness. So you could build this wonderful, fancy house on the beach. If that has no foundation, when the waves come, the storms come, the winds come, it's going to be washed away and gone. And that's what this is saying about a wicked person. You may have this great edifice that is out there, and everyone says, oh, my goodness, look, but they will not be established. There will not be a foundation, and sooner or later their deeds will catch up with them, and sooner or later the same devices that were employed by them will be used against them, and they will come crashing down. But a righteous man is established. A righteous man has his root deep in God. Psalm 1 says this, He is like, a righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. A righteous man has his root deep in God, so much so that he will never be moved. That's a righteous man. Now notice how David continues. This is Psalm chapter one, that that verse I just quoted was verse three. Here's how he continues in verse four. He says, but the wicked are not so. So the righteous man is deeply rooted, but the wicked are are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away, because the wicked have no foundation, and thus they are never established. And so the takeaway from this for you and I is this, keep your eyes on the Lord. Honor the Lord in all of your ways, and the Lord promises to establish you and to bless your endeavors. So when you make that decision to take the hard way, but the right way, the moral way, uh, the way of integrity, or, and not to take the opposite way that is easy, I can get by on some people, I can turn a quick profit or, or whatever it may be. The Lord sees you making this decision. And yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's more difficult. But he blesses that. He honors that. He will not bless or honor this over here. And you may get ahead for a moment or a week or a couple of weeks or even longer than that. But eventually it'll come crashing down and you'll be ex- exposed that there is no foundation in your life. And so... Walk with the Lord, honor the Lord. He will establish you for doing so. Verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but he who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Amen, men? Yes. Well, you know, I I think the same verse, it could certainly apply to women. We could say an excellent husband is the crown of her wife, or his wife, you could say the same thing. But an excellent or virtuous, the King James uses the word wife or husband, brings joy and gladness to their spouse. An excellent husband or wife brings joy or gladness to, my, to their spouse. And so just quite simply, may I say, if you're not yet married and you're thinking that someday you'd like to be married, choose very, very, very carefully the man or the woman that you partner yourself with. You're better off not being married than to be married to a louse, quite frankly. You'll be miserable. But I'll have company, I'll have this, I'll have that. No, you'll be miserable. Choose very wisely. And if you are presently married and you'd like or someday you would like to be married let me throw this out there don't think about they better get their act together you better get your act together you need to be the type of person that your spouse will look at and say I am married to an excellent wife or I am married to an excellent husband so often we think the other person's got to get their act together you need to get your act together amen amen
As we move on to verse 5 through 8, here now we're going to have a series of contrasts between the righteous and the wicked. Really, it's a theme, as I said, of this section of the book. But this specifically goes into contrasting these things. Sometimes the word righteous is used. Sometimes the word upright is used. Sometimes the person is referred to having good sense. And then conversely, the wicked person, sometimes here they're referred to having a twisted mind. But in all the instances, it's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. So the first one is in verse 5. And it says, now the thoughts of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Somebody has said this, that a man's aims are a mirror of his character. And I agree with that statement because if our thoughts, our desires, our aims are continually toward deception and wickedness, as this verse points out, the thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. And if our thoughts, our desire, our aims are continually toward those things, then we need to be quite concerned about where we are spiritually. If your thoughts and intentions are continually towards sin, then you need to be uh, concerned about where you are spiritually. And this is what I was talking about last week, that from time to time, we need to take inventory of our lives. We need to ask ourselves, what, what am I pursuing in life? We have to ask the question, and why am I pursuing that thing? Why is that the thing I want so, uh, so much? What, what, why is, are these things continually coming to my mind? We should be observers of our thoughts and the intents of our hearts, and then assess things accordingly. Now, it's not that the righteous man or woman never has an unrighteous thought. The difference is this. A righteous man or woman refuses to feed that thought. And so the thought might enter in. And what do you do with that? Do you just sort of think about that? And do you go down that path? And do you continue to feed that and nurture that? Or do you cut it off? Paul, the apostle, he says that we are to take every thought captive to Christ. And I think that's what this means. Some people think because a thought comes into their mind that God told them that thought. I know some of the thoughts that come into my mind. And I know that God's not putting those thoughts in my mind. And I'm sure you as well. And so every thought that comes into our mind is not necessarily God. And every thought that comes into our mind has to be taken captive as it says, to obey Christ. Lord, is this a thought that is worthy of me going down? I remember years ago when I was in 10th grade, I had a kid in class. He was a little bit older. I don't know how he got so old, but he was old enough. He, he went out and he got a lottery ticket because the lottery at that time was like $100,000, which was a lot of money in 1985 or something like that. And so it was like really high. And so he decided he would go and he would buy a lottery ticket. And then he came in and he began to talk about how, what he was going to buy with his lottery ticket winnings, as if he was going to win. And so he went through this whole thing. And I was sucked into this, this trap. I really was. And my mind began to think of all the things I would buy. I don't know what the English class was about that particular day, because that entire period I was thinking about, what am I going to buy? What am I going to do? And stuff. That's not good sometimes to let our minds go those places. There's no fruit in that. That's, that's not good. And our mind goes down there. And so we take every thought captive. Is this really what I should be doing? Planning what my house is going to be like and what car I'm going to have and all this? Or should I be listening to Mrs. Hinkle, who's teaching me the vocabulary words in English? Listen to Mrs. Hinkle. All right, that's the takeaway. Put that in your notes, H-I-N-C-K-L-E, Mrs. Hinkle. And so we want to take every thought captive to Christ. I really like Matthew Henry. I've been enjoying his uh, study in, um, of Proverbs. Matthew Henry said this, a good man 
may have in his mind bad suggestions, but he does not indulge them to the point that they are ripened. And I think that is very good. Learn to take every thought captive. Should I be going down this path with my thinking? Is it wise? Now Solomon addressed the thoughts of the righteous and the wicked right there. In verse 6 he now is going to address the words of the righteous and the wicked. And so he says in verse 6, The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. And so earlier I quoted William MacDonald. He's the guy who said a man's aims are a mirror of his character. Well, even so, I think we could say the same thing about our words. That not just our aims are a mirror of our character, but our words are a mirror of what's going on within our hearts. We've quoted a number of times. Jesus said, again, out of the mouth, the heart, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it's a mirror of our characters that the, the words that we allow to come out of us reveal a lot of what's going on within us. And the words that we speak, the words that come forth out of our mouths, are very, very powerful. You can build a person up or tear a person down with the words that you speak. I still remember, I don't know how long ago, it was forever ago, but I had a student in class say, Mr. Dance, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you get dressed in the dark, she said. Do you normally get Fs on your projects? I said, you know, in response to her. She asked me if I got dressed in the dark because apparently it looks like I do or whatever. Now, it was one random comment from a long, long time ago. And she was a nice enough kid. We had a friendly relationship. But for the rest of my days teaching, and even now, because oftentimes I get up and come to church before my wife's awake uh, on Sunday mornings, even now I pick out my outfit the night before as you can tell, when the light is on. Because I'm afraid that you guys are thinking, yeah, he probably does get dressed in the dark or whatever. Just the words that we speak can stick with a person. And when a person speaks positive words, encouraging words into our lives, that sticks with that person and administers life to that person. And conversely, if the words are cutting, you know, there are some people that have such an ability to cut people down with their words. I remember when I was teaching, again, kids tend to do this more so than adults, but the, the kids, they would gather, two people would get in the middle. And when I was little, you'd get in the middle and you'd fist fight. But these two kids would get in the middle and they would put each other down. Was there, is there a term for this? It was a Ewing. You were involved, I remember. I'm just kidding. All right, but they would basically have this battle as to who could put who down the best. And there would be a crowd of people around them, and they would cheer when you know, she cut so-and-so down and he cut her back down or whatever. Some people have this ability to cut a person. But you can cut a person so deeply that the impact can last years and years and years. So the wise person, remember the contrast, the wise person takes such great care with the words that they allow themselves to speak. Again, to quote David, David wrote in one of his Psalms, David knew that the words I speak matter. They impact people. They leave a lasting impact in people's hearts. And so David simply said this, God, he said, Lord, set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. I think each of us would be very wise to pray that same prayer daily and to specifically pray that prayer when you get into a conflict with someone. So you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your children, kids at school, people you work with, how wise it would be before you open your mouth to say, well, yeah, instead in your heart to pray, Lord, set a guard over my mouth so that the only words that come out are going to be words that are edifying. Wise individuals guard their tongues and they're careful 
not to let even one hurtful word come forth because they know that even a word in jest can have long-term consequences for the one receiving that word. And so be on, let your, be on your guard about the words you speak. Now there's another contrast, verse 7. Between the wicked and the righteous, it reiterates what verse 3 has told us. The verse again, I'll read it to you. It says, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Again, it's a reiteration of verse 3 that the godly man, godly excuse me, woman, will be established while the triumphing of the wicked, if there is any triumphing, it will be short-lived at best. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Solomon continues in verse 8. He says, a man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Now just stop for a moment and think, how do you respond? How do you feel about a person that has insight and acts wisely? How do you feel about a person? Think of a person in your mind uh, that you, you look to, you know, that person thinks and acts wisely. How do you respond to that person? Well, you probably think well of that person. You might even be prone to get as near to that person as you can so you can glean some of their wisdom. Now, compare that person in your mind with a person that has a twisted mind. How do you respond to individuals that have no principles or are given to twisted and deceptive ways? Likely, I hope, you steer clear of such a person. And even if you do go near them, you certainly don't esteem that person highly. Rather, the person in their ways should, I would imagine, become contemptible to you. And so you have just this contrast between the two. Solomon says the wise person will think and act according to his or her good sense, and they will be commended for doing so. And so we should strive to be that sort of person. He continues, Solomon, to draw this contrast. He draws attention to the inner attitude of a person. If you look at verse 9, he says, Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. I think in our day we might write this this way. Better to own a Ford Escort than to be making payments on a Lincoln Town Car. Solomon's point is that you put yourself at risk of poverty in order to play the great man. Now, I'm not necessarily against auto loans or, or things like that, or a mortgage and stuff. I wish I didn't have one, and I'm working toward paying those things off, but I'm not necessarily against it. I think Dave Ramsey would scold me right now for, for saying that. And, oh, Kendra, too. Um, all righty. <laughs> what I'm drawing your attention to is the person that goes out and gets that vehicle that they can't afford or the person that upgrades to that home, which is outside of their means, and does so primarily for the purpose of what other people are going to think about them. Again, I've been telling you a lot about my time teaching. I remember a conversation we were having in our class one time, and so I posed the question. I said, what would you rather have, a nice home or a nice car? If you could only have one or the other, what would you rather have, a nice home or a nice car when you get older and you're grown up? And I was taken aback by how many of the students said a nice car. And so I followed up and I said, well, well, why is that? And the response was, well, no one sees where I live, but everyone sees the car that I drive. And I just, it just struck me, well, what's at the heart of that? The heart of that is I want people to perceive that I'm a great man. There, or play the great man, as this verse says here. Remember that commercial a few years ago where you could rent a car and they'll come pick you up? And so they came, to, and the guy rented a car because he was going to his reunion and he wanted people to see him in a nice fancy car at his high school reunion. He was trying to play 
the great man. Solomon says, it's better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. It's better to be contented with little and even run the risk of people thinking you are little or lowly, as he says, than to play some game to impress others that you don't have the financial means to be playing. So the combination of low social status with food on the table is better than to pretend a high social status and be starving. And so Solomon reminds us of this simple truth. We don't need to play the great man. The, the wise person lives within their means and is even frugal with their means. The wise person refuses to concern themselves with, the, with what others think about themselves and refuse to allow themselves to play the great man so that others will be impressed. And such decisions pay huge dividends over a lifetime. And so Solomon exhorts us, be the wise person. Now, verse 10, a couple more verses here. Solomon, he continues, he says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Once again, a contrast between the righteous and the the wicked. Solomon says, he draws this contrast even between the way that a righteous person will regard the life of his beast. They're thinking likely of farm animals and things like that. You can think of your dog, whatever it is you want to think about. Alexander McLaren, he wrote this. What I think about these words. He says, goodness sweeps a wide circle touching the throne of God and the stall of the cattle. Got that? You don't understand what I'm saying. When Jesus does a work within our hearts, it impacts every area of our lives. When we come to church and we go to the throne room of God and when we're out on the farm working with our animals. When God gets a hold of a person's heart, he changes that person from the inside out. And quite simply, you take away a verse from this verse, kindness to animals is a mark of a righteous man or woman. Solomon makes clear that even when the wicked person thinks he is being merciful, that such mercy is nevertheless cruelty, he says, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And so a good man will be merciful to all he comes in contact with. Now, that doesn't mean you can't eat meat, and it doesn't mean you can't hunt or fish, but what it does mean is you need to stop kicking your dog, is, is what it means. You need to stop mistreating animals or anyone else you perceive to be less than you simply because you're stronger than they are. That's what it means. It means that you demonstrate mercy. The way in which you treat an animal or a person that is less than you, a child, whatever it may be, is an indicator of the work that God has done and is doing in your work. And Solomon says, in so many words to us, reflect that work. And so the person that is, uh, the, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. He continues in verse 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Now there are two verses. Verse 11 is one of two verses, the other being verse 14, that deals with the common theme in the book of Proverbs of hard work and industriousness. And Solomon contrasts in this verse the sure results of honest industry with the foolishness of worthless pursuits. And so the idea would be this. The one guy, he gets up every morning and he goes to work and he does his or her thing. He or she goes to work, does his or her thing for a week and then comes home at the end of the week and they receive a satisfactory paycheck for their labor. That's the one person. The second person sleeps in on Monday and Tuesday, and then they spend the rest of the week trying to come up with some get-rich-quick scheme 
by the end of the week. That's the second person. And Solomon is contrasting these two people. The only way to get honest wealth is to work for it. One commentator I read, he said this, the man who spends his time in worthless pursuits not only has an empty cupboard, but also an empty head. Now, I agree with him, though I'm not that comfortable with calling people empty heads, and so I'll quote people that call people empty heads. But he says here, the only... The man who spends his time in worthless pursuits has not only an empty cupboard, but an empty head. There's an old English proverb, and I think it speaks to this. It says, keep thy shop, and thy shop will keep thee. And the point is this, work hard, work consistently, work steadily, and you will have the fruit of your labor. And whether that's the job you do, or you're in school, and you're doing your studies, or whatever it may be, you work hard, you work consistently, and you work steadily, and you'll experience the fruit of your labor. We, in our backyard, we got all these little gardens all over the place, sort of, not really, mostly weeds. We're growing weeds in various places in my yard or whatever. And when we first moved in over the years, I began to put a little flower bed thing over here and another one over there and one there and one around to this and one around to that and so on. And every single week, it seems, you got to keep up with the weeds. Now, normally, my plan was for backyard lawn care, normally my plan was three times a year or something, I'll get out there and I'll spend 20 hours weeding all the various places, put some mulch down, and then it'll be good for another two, three months. And I quickly came to realize that that didn't work. And and then I was finally, forget it. Let the weeds take over. We're all going to die anyway and the world's going to burn, you know, kind of thing. And then my wife would say, maybe you could do some weeding or whatever, or she would get out there. And I'm like, oh, I got my wife out there while I'm inside eating bonbons or something, you know, and so then I'd be out there, and then like two years ago, now what am I, 46? 46 years old, it took me 44 years to learn this, that if I spent like 10, 15 minutes every week pulling the little bit of weeds that are there, spraying a little bit of stuff there, I'd be done, and so I began doing that, and now I come into the house, and I'm like, this is amazing, this whole process of weeding your lawn just a little bit at a time, I don't know why I tell you this story. Oh, I know why. Keep your shop, and your shop will keep thee. If you work hard, you work consistently, you work steadily, you will see the fruit of your efforts. In my case with lawn care, but you can apply it to your schooling, whatever it may be. Solomon, he really, what he says is, you will have plenty of bread. You'll see the fruit of your efforts. And he continues another example of those that are unwilling to work hard versus the industrious. Look at verse 12. He says, whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. And so here Solomon, he points out that the wicked... They sit around, they take notice of other men, wicked men, seemingly getting ahead, and they begin to covet what they have and how they got it. And so they begin to desire, well, maybe I could do the same thing as well. And so they covet the spoil of evildoers. A whole lot better. Hey, if you can just dump it in my lap compared to me going out to have to work for it. And okay, so it requires a little bit of sin to get it dumped in my lap, but it sure is easy to acquire it that way. No. This verse makes clear whoever is the wicked person covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous it bears fruit. The only way, to, I've said it before, to get honest wealth is to work honestly for it because the Lord blesses that sort of life. The Lord establishes that sort of person. And here we see the promises he will cause that person to be fruitful. Now, you notice here, and I think this is significant, both the wicked person 
and the righteous person wants this particular thing. And Solomon doesn't say that this thing is evil necessarily. If you go back to the previous verse, he refers to it as bread. And so there's nothing wrong with, you know, desiring that bread, wanting that bread. Jesus tells us in the New Testament to pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, he said. Today we might change our daily bread to a reliable car or a home, a safe home, place to live. And so desiring that in and of itself is not wrong. And so the Lord says, okay, here's how you acquire that. You see, he knows our need, and he tells us how he plans to meet the need. Here's how he plans to give you that need. Verse 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. He knows you have this need. He plans to give you that need. Here's how you do it. Get out in the field and start working. And we either trust him and his way, or we trust ourselves and some alternative way. The Lord says, trust me. The wise person does. And so we get up on a regular basis, consistently do what we're supposed to do, and we see the Lord bless such a way. Now we come again, verse 13. Again, we come to this idea of the words that we speak. There's a number of verses. I think it's uh, seven times in, the book of, in chapter 12 that deal with the words that we speak. And so in verse 13, he says, An evil man is ensnared by the transgressions of his lip, uh, lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. Unrighteous people are often trapped by their own words. The psalmist, he said, They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. And so you think of the unrighteous person, perhaps, that is telling a lie. And by failing to tell a consistent story, the unrighteous person trips themselves up. So they lie about something, and then the first lie must be defended by a second lie, and then that second lie by a third lie, and soon, and pretty soon you've heard the example, they forget what it is they've lied about. And they got to go back and remember all the different lies that they said, and they finally tell a lie that doesn't jive with the ones that came before, and somebody calls them out on it. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, you said, and now their own words have tripped them up their own words come back I mean how many times have you heard of somebody and this is a different example not about lying but this is a person that says one thing behind their back over here and then something else out here in front of everybody else and how many times have you heard about the person who said something over here that got caught on tape you hear a lot with politicians and things like that and then they put the tape out there and the person is caught in their words And the words of a righteous person, it comes back to haunt them. They are, as it says in the proverb, they are ensnared by the transgression of their own lips. Again, to quote the psalmist, they are brought to ruin with their own tongues that are turned against them. Now, the righteous person doesn't need to worry about what lie they told to what person. So there are no traps that they have to worry that they might fall into. And matters in life are so arranged in in the way that this world works, and I think God did it this way, that the straight course is the true and safe one. And if you just continue to move down that straight path, you don't have to remember the lies you said. You're not going to trap yourself uh, in past statements. You're not going to get caught saying something on tape that you wouldn't say out in public or whatever. You just keep running your race. No traps for you to fall into. All right? Watch the words you say. Verse 14, Solomon continues with another verse talking about words. He says in verse 
uh, in the verse, I should say. It says, from the, mouth, from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. So uh, in the previous verse, he's talking about good words, saying good words, don't lie, and so on. Here now he's talking about good works, if you will. Uh, as it says, from the mouth of a man is satisfied with good, that's good words, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him, that would be good works. The idea is in this verse is simply this. It is pleasurable for a righteous man to speak well of other people. That it's pleasurable. And it's pleasurable to serve other people. Good works and good, wor- and good words. Some people, again, take great pleasure in cutting other people down. They consider themselves a hero at being able to do so. But the righteous person takes delight in being able to be an encouragement to other people with their words. The righteous person, when their words are able to communicate wisdom and gentleness and purity and encouragement, they take pleasure in that, so much so that their heart is satisfied in being in that place. They have this sense of, wow, Maybe the person goes away and they have the sense, the Lord just used me to speak a word of encouragement and to pick up that person's day with the words that I shared. And so they're satisfied in that. And then secondly, Solomon points out that a righteous man is satisfied. They're going to be a man of good work. And they're going to be satisfied in doing so. That means that their good works bring satisfaction to their heart as well. It becomes a pleasure for this person to get their hands dirty on behalf of other people. It's why here at Calvary, we've sent 10 or 12 teams to different parts of the nation that were hit with different uh, hurricanes and things like that. About seven or eight, 10 teams down to Louisiana and then sent people out into Texas and West Virginia and other places. And you have people in our church volunteering, oftentimes to spend their own money to go, to take their own vacation time to go and serve people they've never met before mucking out their homes and carrying out stuff and ripping down wet sheetrock and things like that. And people, you know, might even ask, why are you doing that? Why would you go on your own vacation time to that particular place? And it's almost as if, like the response, sometimes people have asked that kind of of me, the response is, you got to go and you'll see why. It just brings such a peace and such a satisfaction to know that you're being used by the Lord to be a blessing to this person. Many times when hurricanes and things like that destroy people's homes, floods destroy people's homes, many of the residents are wrestling with, where is God? Why would God allow this? I prayed to God that it wouldn't happen. And then you come walking in, and you got your matching shirts, you know, and you're from New Jersey, and you come walking in on the scene, and you're answering that question. We believe the Lord sent us here to minister to you this week by mucking out your home. You're an answer to those people's prayer, really. That brings a great satisfaction to your heart when you're able to be that type of person in a person's life. And so Solomon says that a a righteous man is satisfied with the words that come out of their mouths because they've encouraged people. And a righteous man is satisfied and woman is satisfied with the fruit of their labor because they know they're being used by the Lord. Now, we've looked at a lot of verses this morning, talking about righteous man, unrighteous man, and so on. And I think oftentimes what can happen in a study like this is we'll take a few of these ideas and say, you know what, I'm going to work on that one, and I'm going to commit myself to that one and that one. And we sort of leave here determined we're going to do a better job in this area, this area, and this area. And I, I don't think we should look at these verses as action points. 
I think, I think it's sort of a mistake. Now, I do think sometimes we study the word and we discover some things and we're like, I had no idea that that was wrong. I remember when I was 17, 18 years old, I went to a youth conference and the person got up to speak and they said something and I was like, is she for real? This person? That's wrong? And I went back to one of the youth leaders and I said, is that right? And she, he said, yeah, here it is in the, in the word. I had no idea. But somebody showed it to me in the word and okay, I went on from there. But more often than not, we know the things we're doing that are right and the things that we're doing that are wrong. And it's not like we have to discover like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. We already have an idea. It's really a matter of walking in these things. But when we study a passage like this, oftentimes we leave and we say, well, I'm going to commit myself more to this area, this area, and this area, as if these are action points. I don't think Solomon intends for these verses to be action points as much as indicators. That these are indicators. These are those things that will reveal, how are you doing? And if again and again these things are revealing that you're more on the line of, or the side of the wicked person or the foolish person as opposed to being more on the side in your decision-making and actions with the righteous person, if it reveals this one over here more often than not, then that should concern you. And that's why I talked about a few weeks back about taking inventory. That's our passage here, taking regular inventory. That's the title of our message here. And I've shared this before. I loved Christmas time when I worked in the mall. I worked at a little clothing store that was in the mall. I loved Christmas time because it was nuts. And it was a zoo. And before you know it, your work day was done. And you put in six hours, eight hours, or whatever it may be. But during this time of year, at the end of every single day or every couple of days, we had to stop everything. We, we shut the place down. We had to stay an extra hour, which was unusual. Because stuff was all over the place. I don't know what people were doing. All right, but they were just throwing sweatpants and shirts and everything all over the place. And something that should have been here was way down over there. Now, if you just kind of look and say, well, how many are on the shelf? Not knowing there's another 14 that somebody carried and put over there. Well, then you're going to go and order this stuff and you're going to have all kinds of problems. And so the manager would have us, everything has to be returned to where it's going to go. And then the manager, when we were all done, and he and she sometimes would help us, and we were all done, he, they would take inventory. So they would know what they need to order for the rest of the week that was ahead of us. And I think life can get that way, can get so crazy. We can be going in all different directions, and I didn't die today, I made it through the day. I didn't kill anybody today, I made it through the day. But life can seem so crazy that we need to stop from time to time. And I th now this is the point I want to make about Proverbs 12, and all of the Proverbs here. These are indicators. And if you're looking at your life and you're saying, man, I never measure up with the righteous one. I'm always on the other side of things. That's an indicator to you that something is askew in your heart. And it may be that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Everything is askew in your heart if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ enters into our lives, he gives us a new heart. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your heart can still be askew. You can still be off track you can still be running after the wrong things. And this passage will reveal that to us. And so pray. Take some time this week. Pray about these things. If you need to, what do we do? 15 verses or so, 14 verses. Take a little bit of time with each verse and allow the Lord to search out your heart. Lord, how do I measure up with this verse? If it were a scale, which side of the scale am I on? And if the Lord says, you remember how you used to be? You were a mess in this particular area. But look at you now. And if the Lord reveals that to you, woohoo, praise the Lord. 
Lord, amen. Don't rejoice in yourself. Well, I'm pretty awesome, Lord. No, rejoice in the work that he has done in your life and commit yourself to continue in that. But if he reveals you're over on this side and you got, there's some work that needs to be done, well, then submit that to him and say, you know what, Lord, I've been off in this area. I used to be good. Now I'm off again. Would you get me right with you? And submit that to him and the Lord be, will begin to do a work and the growing process will continue on in your walk with Jesus. And I hope that's what you want, right? That's why you're here. Yeah, that's why I'm here, is so that I can continue to grow in my understanding of who God is and what he wants for me. And boy, there's enjoyment in life in that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for my friends, and I do pray your blessing on each of them and on myself this week as I meditate further on your word. And Lord, whether it's this passage or another passage, Lord, we do pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts and that we would come to you prayerfully about these things. Lord, if we come to an area that is, uh, is off the mark and we're harboring anger or bitterness or we're walking in our own wisdom, Lord, give us the courage and the strength to commit that area to you. Lord, you know us. You know what we need. Lord, I pray that throughout this week you'd, you'll speak words of encouragement to us through our interactions, our encounters. Lord, I pray if need be you'd have a, a dear brother or sister in the Lord at the right time Uh, reach out to us and phone us and just speak that right word of truth and lord you would do the work you desire to do in each one of us and that is grow us into the image of your son father we pray for those with us that may not yet be saved and forgiven of their sins but i pray that even during these next couple songs you'd bring a conviction that i need eternal life that is found in jesus christ alone i need to have my sins forgiven And Lord, as you bring that conviction, you'd bring them to the place where they look to you, they look to the cross of Jesus Christ, and they place their eternal trust in the work of God at Calvary. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.